Did any of you guys like to play hide and seek when you were a kid? Yeah, I did. Now my, my two are way too grown up, of course, now to, to enjoy playing hide and seek anymore since we almost have a teenager in our house. Um, but you know, a lot of people still think that God likes to play hide and seek, though. And they'll ask things like, why isn't God more obvious? Or why is God silent when prayers seem to go unanswered? Or maybe they'll ask something like, uh, when suffering and, and tragedy strikes, well, God, why would you allow that to happen? Maybe someone will ask, well, why does someone that we love have to get sick and die, or, or worse yet, get really sick and not die, but spend months and months in physical and mental anguish? Or maybe the question comes in the form of, uh, when there may be millions and millions of people who uh, don't know God, why doesn't he just give this great big heavenly sign and peel back the clouds and and thunder down from heaven i'm here right and all of those questions get get at basically the same idea and that's the seeming hiddenness of god and that's a topic that uh, is also the theme of our text today as we turn again uh, to the book of psalms and the next in our series which is psalm 10 so if you're following along in your bibles and i encourage you to do that because Uh, You know, it's great to follow on the screen, but there's nothing more important uh, than to see God's Word in your own Bible, in your own hand, where you can take it back home and recover it again. So I encourage you, if you're following along, we're in Psalm chapter 10, verse 1. And the psalmist writes, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised. For the wicked boast of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there's no God. His ways prosper all the time. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I will not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his own net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see it. But arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see. For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commit himself. You have been the father and the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You'll incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So 
thus far as the reading of God's Word, let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you uh, for this Word. We ask you to bring it to our hearts and minds today and let your Word go forward to us, Lord, because you promised that it will never return to you in vain, but accomplish all that you purpose. And so we trust you for that today, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So now I'm reading through that uh, psalm together. I'm sure you notice some familiar themes that David has been talking about in previous psalms, but really the overarching theme of his writing in Psalm 10 today deals with something that, if we're honest, every thinking person has at some time uh, surely raised in their minds, and that is the question of where is God in the midst of heartache and of suffering and of tragedy? Uh, where is He on those days that just don't seem to make any sense? You know, the um, British atheist Bertrand Russell wondered the same thing. He was asked, because uh, of course he always denied the existence of God, he said, uh, if after you die, it turns out that you're wrong about the existence of God and He suddenly uh, encounters you face to face, what would you say to Him? And Russell said, I would say, God, you never gave me sufficient evidence to believe in you. Now, that's pretty bold. And we may not share Russell's militant atheism, but all of us, I think, if we're honest, would just love one time to see God part the heavens uh, and look down on us from time to time, wouldn't we? Wouldn't you love that? Uh, and, and we may have at least had the thought that David expressed today when he said, Why, O oh God, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He's saying, God, if you're there, send me a sign. Uh, make something happen. Show me a miracle. But you know, the reality is that God in His sovereignty is not often revealed in the flashy and in the dramatic, but rather much more often in that still, small voice. A voice that is often barely audible except to the most patient and to the most still. Uh, a voice heard when His people broken and human as we are, seeks through the power of the Holy Spirit to see God and to hear God and to find God so beautifully obvious in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, and for you and I today, that's a joy and it's a comfort uh, and a confirmation really of our faith. But for those outside of Christ, those things never seem to be enough. Never enough for folks that may have the outward appearance of godliness, but inwardly deny all of its power. Uh, those folks that look religious on the outside, but in their hearts, they're far from God. Uh, and who are the people that David had in mind when he wrote that uh, their mouths were filled with cursing and deceit and oppression, and that under their tongue was mischief and iniquity? And, and you know, when I read through that, it, it kind of reminded me, uh, kind of sounded very reminiscent of that band of Pharisees who were always hounding after Jesus, doesn't it? Uh, especially the ones who showed up after his feeding of the 4,000, which was an incredible miracle and undeniable proof of God's presence in the world. So listen to what happened. If you're following along, this is in Mark chapter 8, verse 6. And it says, He, meaning Jesus, directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them. And he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and then he sent them away. 
Now, after all of that, okay, just picture that in your mind. You know, there's the feeding of the 5,000, there's the feeding of the 4,000. It's this incredible miracle where God shows up. And then here comes this group of Pharisees with deceit and oppression under their tongue who were arrogant enough to still demand that Jesus produce for them another sign from God. I guess that one wasn't enough. So listen to what happened in continuing in verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into a boat, and went to the other side. So these Pharisees come to argue with Jesus, these supposed shepherds and pastors of the people, these blind guides who always wanted to be right, even when they were wrong. It's like a, uh, a nervous but kind of arrogant young minister who was uh, hired on to his first church, and on his first Sunday uh, to preach, he got so, so proud and, and pretentious that he became flustered, and he mixed up his words, and he said to his flock for my text today, I'll take the words, and they fed five men with 5,000 loaves of bread and 2,000 fishes. And now most of the congregation snickered like you guys just did at the mistake. But one fellow, a, a man named Mr. Perkins, stood up and said, just feed five men with 5,000 loaves and 2,000 fishes. Uh, that's not much of a miracle there, Pastor. Why even I could do that? Well, the young minister didn't respond then. He just kind of went on with the service. But he stewed all week long about Mr. Perkins having made a fool of him that Sunday. And the next Sunday, he decided to repeat the text. And this time, he thought he would do it to put his critic in his place in front of all the rest of the congregation members. So this time he said very carefully and distinctly, our text today is, and they fed 5,000 men with five loaves of bread and two fishes. And then with his very big, arrogant, condescending smile, he looked over the congregation and over the crowd and he said, could you do that, Mr. Perkins? Well, almost as the words of challenge were still hanging in the air the man replied i sure could pastor so the minister got really irate and and he said oh yeah really well how would you do it and mr perkins said why i'd do it with all that food you had left over from last week <laughs> but have, have you ever noticed how religious people love to argue right people who read their bibles but with no intention of loving other people or of following jesus or of helping those in need now they're just kind of around to to uh, to talk and, and debate and, and to argue and they can be some of the most draining people in the world can't they have you ever met anybody like that uh, mean-spirited ill-tempered filled with with lots of head knowledge about the bible but zero heart change well that's what jesus is dealing with and the attacks from these Pharisees have been uh, escalating from kind of indirect assaults until now they've reached the point of face-to-face -face confrontation. Leading up to this moment, they've been kind of challenging him things like uh, healing on the Sabbath, uh, forgiving sins, picking grain with his disciples, and on and on. And now they came straight to his face and argued and demanded a sign from heaven. Uh, and what the Pharisees wanted was not another healing 
not an exorcism or a mass feeding. They wanted a bona fide sign from heaven. And an apocalyptic manifestation that would prove beyond all doubt that Jesus had God's approval. Uh, the Pharisees wanted God to dramatically defend Jesus' claims before they were willing to accept him. Now, having said that, before we go on, there's nothing wrong with wanting to see God show up in amazing ways, right? But you see, their motives were way off. Because there's a huge difference between wanting to see God do something amazing and simply wanting God to do something to satisfy our curiosity or our expectations. Uh, And the text says, Jesus sighed deeply in his spirit and he said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given. You see, Jesus had already filled the land with undeniable proof that he was the Messiah, didn't he? Uh, And that he was sent by the Father, as predicted by the prophets, doing miracles that only the Messiah could do. So when the leaders demanded a sign, they implied that the miracles that he had already performed were insufficient. That they weren't good enough. So it's no wonder that Jesus sighed like he did. Uh, And you know, this type of of feeling from Jesus really parallels God the Father's attitude toward the people of Israel in the Exodus. Do you remember uh, back when Moses was up on Mount Sinai, Exodus 32 tells us, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. Did you notice in the text there how God isn't even claiming them anymore? Now they're not my people, those are your people, right? They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made for themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Because remember, the people had seen God deliver them from Egypt with great and mighty power. They had seen God part the sea so they could cross over on dry land. He'd protected them in the desert. He was visibly present before them in a pillar of smoke at night, or a pillar of smoke in the day and a column of fire at night. And they still doubted him and missed God's obvious presence right in front of them. And still they tested God and doubted his nearness, and still they lived on sight and not on faith. In the same way, the religious leaders were testing Jesus, and and Jesus is angry and, and agitated and said plainly, you know, the kind of sign that you're looking for, that's not going to be given. Because Jesus' only concern was and is the good news of the gospel. And he does and did miracles when and how he determined if they advance the kingdom, but never just for show. Because, you know, the truth is that even sporadic supernatural demonstrations by God would never fully satisfy sinful humanity's insistence that our Lord constantly be accountable to him for his actions, right? Like we have some inherent right for God to justify himself to us and demand of him that just one incontrovertible miracle in our lives would dispel every other doubt in every other circumstance, when in reality, that's just an arrogant intellectual, hard-hearted smokescreen that we hide behind. Because the solution has to go deeper. It's got to go deeper than we usually care to look and is more often found in what we consider ordinary and what we take for granted, like the Word of God. English spiritual writer Anthony Bloom kind of underscores that ailment pretty well. He wrote, We complain that God does not make Himself present to us 
for the few minutes we reserve for him. But what about the 23 and a half hours during which God may be knocking at our door and we'll answer, I'm busy now. Or, I'm sorry, Lord, maybe later. Or when we do not answer the door at all because we don't even hear the knock. We don't hear the knock at the door of our mind and our conscience and our heart and our life. And he concludes by saying, so we have a situation in which we have no right to complain of the absence of God because we are a great deal more absent than he is. We're a great deal more absent than he is. So, you know, if you ever feel like God is playing hide and seek with you, if you feel you really need a sign, if you want Jesus to prove himself, then at least take the first step and get into the word of God. Allow himself to prove himself to you through his his transformation of your life by renewing your mind and your spirit with the scriptures. Uh, Don't come to him demanding that he prove himself. Just come to him humbly, yet with joyful anticipation of what he's got in store for you. Trust him. Trust him in his word and in his means of grace at this table and in the movement of the Holy Spirit. You you see, the, the folks that David wrote about and the folks that Jesus argued with here were looking for God to be something they could control or at least manipulate to their ends or be able to maybe to fully explain. But you know, that's a fallacy born out of our addiction to the external, to just what we can see and touch and our willful desire to have what we want when we want it. But you know, brothers and sisters, Jesus has proved himself over and over and over again, even though he was certainly under no obligation to do it, hasn't he? You know, the hymn writer uh, Louisa Steed in 1882 wrote these lines that I know you're going to recognize because we've sung them hundreds of times. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise and to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him or and or. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Not to trust in the results of any kind of work on our part, but on Christ as a free gift. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing that you have that can pay for it. Uh, And all of it is represented here today at this table. But before you come, I need to remind you that although this gift is free, it is by no means cheap. It costs God the death of his one and only son, a death we commemorate every time we partake of this Lord's table, A, a place where the ordinary takes on the miraculous for us spiritually. Uh, And and know the the bread and and the wine don't become flesh and blood. They don't change in substance at the molecular level. But by the intervention of the Holy Spirit, they change us. They change us. When we meet Jesus at his supper, a supper of the most ordinary things that brings us the most extraordinary worship. Uh, A worship that's the ultimate expression of the reality of God's presence in his Son, who we're going to receive today. Receive with all of our faculties, with all of our senses. Just think about this. Every time we we smell the fresh bread and and taste the wine and and feel the touch of another person's hands as the trays are passed, and we see the table laid out before us, and we hear the words of institution, and we have this ultimate expression of worship that touches every one of our senses. This gift from God who comes so conspicuously near to his creation at this table. A place where we're welcomed, summoned 
to come forward just as we are. The poor to a benevolent giver. The sick to the great physician. The sinful to the author of righteousness and children to the father of life. And today Christ calls all of you that will hear to his table to commune with him and to pray. And to pray in the words of David today, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You'll strengthen their heart. You'll incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. You know, a prayer that God answered completely in the incarnation and the death of Jesus Christ. A place where our God more than just inclined his head to hear our desperate cries. Where he did more than just stoop down to help us up. But he became one of us. Sharing our weakness and bearing our sins. So that in Jesus, we most clearly and definitely see the self-giving love and mercy of a God that not just knows us, but that makes himself known. Amen.